As we, uh, as we prepare to get into the Word of God, we'll be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Um, I was reminded, I heard it this week, and Willie reminded me about uh, Jeff Bennett. Um, a lot of people here may know him. I, I hadn't had the pleasure of knowing him, but I've, I've heard about him. And uh, he suffered an accident this week and, and passed on from a, from a tree accident. He, he was doing some logging and some different things. So as we prepare to study this morning, I'm also going to say a prayer for him and uh, his family as well, if you'll go with me in prayer. Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for every individual and family that's represented here, and those that aren't here, as, as uh, Rick A. was telling us about. Pray that you will be with, with everyone. Pray that your word will be powerful. Um, it comes from you each week. And Father, we also are mindful of those who hurt, and now the, the family of, of, of Jeff is hurting. We pray that you will be with them and comfort them, Father, throughout this situation. And I know another family suffered uh, the loss of a young two-year-old this week in a, in a drowning at Van Biver Lake. And uh, we were prepared to help do a memorial service and something fell through or something, whatever it was, we still pray for that family, Father. We pray for the loss. We pray for the hurt. Pray that you will be with them and comfort them, Father. And as we dissect your word this morning that lives and abides forever i'm reminded that in psalms you said that you have elevated your word above your name and we know what your name your reputation means to you and your word is elevated above that so as we as we open it this father that today father we pray that we will humbly recognize the power but also what you think of it and so that we handle it rightly father and we ask this in jesus name Amen. Luke chapter 10. Going to take a look at one of the most well-known parables that Jesus had. But I think it might be one of the most misunderstood parables as well. Um, As we take a look at the Good Samaritan. uh, This particular parable is so well-known that it's actually become an idiom. You know, whenever somebody does a really outstanding deed people will look at them and say oh they're such a good Samaritan it's became kind of a label for that for for the goodness of a gift that someone gives Uh, it's a noble compliment but sometimes our familiarity with the story can kind of mask what lies behind it and what was the the true meaning that Jesus was trying to point out as he taught this we think that we know the story and the point For some people, it's all about helping those that are in need. But today, let's try to dig a little deeper and see what he was really trying to focus on. Because the focus of Jesus when he taught was not just about meeting physical needs, but it was about spiritual needs. Everything that he taught was about you and I, about people, about the Word of God, and it's about what the spiritual need is. It's about what eternal life is is about it's about evangelism if you remember with Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to him and wanted to talk to him he told him you must be born again so there was a need that was there that was not just what he was was discussing the rich young ruler there was a need and he said go sell all that you have and come follow me and it's going to be the same thing here with the lawyer that we're going to find out 
in just a minute. So in Luke chapter 10, we're going to find a man who had been on a familiar journey to these guys, the Jericho Road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and something devastating happened to him. And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. And we'll begin in verse 25 if you're there in Luke chapter 10. And in verse 25, Jesus is in the middle of teaching. And as he is, it says that a lawyer stands up and interrupts him. He's a a type of an expert in the law of Moses. And he puts him to the test, it says, by saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there's the question that we're going to be looking at throughout this entire study. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that is by far the greatest question that can be asked today. And so whatever the answer is, is the greatest answer to the greatest question that we face in life. And it should be on our minds. It was on their minds. You know, in the Old Testament time, they believed in a resurrection of the dead. A lot of them did. The uh, Sadducees didn't, so that's why they're sad, you see. And... uh, But the Pharisees believed in that, and most of the people were, and they were interested in it. And they knew that they had the lineage. I mean, we are of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have the lineage of God. We have a covenant that was made with us that was called circumcision that gave us a covenant between God and us. And he gave us a promised land, and he's been delivering us, and he's guiding us. But still, there was something more because they continually asked the question to Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus gives an answer back to this lawyer in verse 28 when he says, or verse 26, excuse me, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? You're a lawyer. You're a teacher. You're a professional in this. What does it say to you? In other words, he's saying, What? Do the lawyers say today, and what do you teach, is the answer to this question. He had brought forward, it says this, to test him. The word to test there means to put on trial. So here we have a lawyer putting him on trial, but the first thing is, I want to know your definition. What are you telling me it is? What does the legal counsel say? And in verse 27, he answered and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a quote that's taken from two different passages. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and it's from Leviticus 19, verse 18. The word love there in Deuteronomy, when it says to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, it's in a perfect tense, which means it's uninterrupted. It's to go on all the time. It's perfect tense. So that's what we are supposed to do all the time, not just in moments of time or when we feel moved to do that. This is ongoing. So verse 28, Jesus answers to him and he says, that is correct in what you answered. That is the summation of the entire law. Then he quotes Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Live meaning eternal life. That was his question. So I answered your question. 
with telling you to do that because you have the right mindset of what it is. But you know what? You say, wait a minute, where's the gospel answer in that? Where is anything that points to faith in Christ and and those things? Well, Jesus knows the heart of this man. And until you understand what's wrong with you, we can't tell you the proper way to go, is basically what Jesus said. Just like with Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's something that I've got to tell you, the diagnosis of what's wrong before I can give you the cure of what's right. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he has to teach what is lacking to get us to understand. This is personal evangelism. Every one of the parables and everything that Jesus taught was really about personal evangelism because that is what is most important in life. And what he's going to try to get us to look at in this parable of the Good Samaritan is, I can't love like that. His answer was to love God and to love the neighbor as self. And the point of this is, is I can't do that. I can't love God perfectly with all of those faculties that he said, and I certainly can't love enemies that way as well is what he's trying to get the man to understand. He should have, at this point, been like the the one guy who was beating his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinful man. But no, the lawyer doesn't do that. He gave an answer to love the Lord your God. And so he didn't think he needed forgiveness. You know why? Because when you start looking at what that word actually says in the context it is, it's in a future tense and a second person when he says to love the Lord your God. It wasn't personal to him. It was future tense. It wasn't present tense like what the law said back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's future. In other words, I'm not doing it right now. Second person. I'm not taking this personal. I'm telling you what you need to do, but it's not applying to me. And that's what he just replied to Jesus. And that's why Jesus' reply to him was, oh, you've correctly answered, but do this and thou shalt live. Because the do this is present tense, Active voice, you need to do it, and it's a command form. It's an imperative mood. So he had said, future tense, not me. Jesus said, right answer, but wrong application. The application is, this applies to you personally all the time. And so that's the heart of this entire story. He said, do it and you shall live. Now in verse 29, notice the response of the lawyer. He says, Who is my neighbor? He's jumping over the fact of even with God. He's saying that I'm not even going to go there, but qualify to me if you would, who is my neighbor? You see, he had just had his righteousness kind of put in place by Jesus with the change of the tense in the words. And so now he's wanting to save face in front of all these people. He's the lawyer and the teacher, and that's, a carpenter's son. I, I have to now come back with something. So he wants to look good and qualifies the statement. Who is my neighbor? He, it's a cynical response. 
and he can't take it. He says, I'm okay with God, I think. I'm okay with my neighbor unless you have a different definition of who my neighbor is than what I do, is basically what he said. So can you redefine that for me to make sure we're on the same page? And at this point, Jesus could have just dismissed him, couldn't he? He could have just said, you're not going to get it. I'm just going to keep on teaching the people that would, but I don't see that. He is long-suffering. He is graceful. He does not desire for anyone to perish, but that all to come to repentance and to come to him and to have this eternal life. And so he's going to take the time to discuss something with this lawyer that was going to be left behind for us that we can learn from, from him. So we're going to see some insights as he unfolds and gives us the answers to this question as he tells him now what to do. The story is to someone then who is a non-believer so far. It's an evangelistic effort to get him to realize the answer to his question, what must I do for eternal life? So now, in verse 30, we find out that this is not about social justice. It's not about just giving to someone, but it goes deeper. It's not about the other person. It's about me. So, verse 30, in reply to him on who is my neighbor, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite happened to be going down the same road, and he passed by as well on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity upon him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured in oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii and he handed them to the innkeeper. And he said to him, when I return, you take care of him and look after him. And when I return, if you have spent more than this, then I will take that extra expense upon myself as well that you may have. Now, isn't that a fascinating story? Isn't that a tender story of love, care, and compassion that we have? This is an unforgettable thing. It's a dangerous journey, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So let's start dissecting this. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That Jericho road is 17 miles long. What you see up there is just a snippet of one of the places of the Jericho road. It goes from Jerusalem, which is almost 3,000 feet above sea level to Jericho, which is almost 1,000 feet below sea level. So in 17 miles, we have a decline of 4,000 feet in, in height and altitude. It's dangerous. It's rocky. It's got crags and crooks and narrow places where you would fall three to 400 feet off of the precipice into nothing but rocks. And this is a great place for robbers. It was a place for those of ill kind who would hide out in the caves. They would be away from the law. 
And they made their living by attacking people that went on the Jericho Road. It was well known. It was something that they knew about. And so this story relates right to them. They can agree with what's happened. It's barren. It's dangerous. There's caves. You just shouldn't be going there alone. So, and there's a pass as you get between there. That's called the Pass of Aduman. Now in Joshua... um, he refers to it in chapter 18 and verse 17 of this pass of a duman that goes through there. That's from the root Hebrew word dam, which means blood. So in other words, its name is the bloody pass. The reputation is well known by everyone. And Jesus casts this story then in that familiar place, in that setting, and they all knew about it. A group of highwaymen have pounced upon the man who is the subject of our story today and he's lying there he fell among robbers which they would say is predictable if you're there why did you even do it he he shouldn't have been doing that but then it says that they jumped on him that they began beating on him and they left him for dead and they stripped him of everything he had virtually left him practically naked there And the text says that they beat him. And the term for beating there is not just they had hit him once. It means to pummel and to leave him basically left for dead. So this was critical condition that this man was in. They left him for dead. He was in the process of dying. And obviously he is in desperate need for help, isn't he? So it could be a long time before anyone would pass through these straits. And if it is, they're kind of a far way from help. He's in a tough situation. And then Jesus immediately begins to bring us a ray of hope in this story. When in verse 31 he says, A priest happened to be going down that same road in the same way. Wow, now on the surface there's hope. Here's something that's going to help this person who's in critical condition. This man sacrifices offerings in the temple. He teaches. He knows the law. He knows in the Old Testament that it says in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, that when a foreigner has resided among you in your land, you don't mistreat him. The foreigner that's residing among you must be treated as native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Wow, so if you're a stranger and you're in need, the law says that you're supposed to love them and care for them as you would yourself. This priest would have known that scripture. He would have taught it every year as they teach through what they had as the Old Testament. They taught it through every year. Exodus chapter 23 starting in verse 4, says that even if your enemy's donkey falls in a ditch, you are to pull it out and to help that person. If the Lord put that scripture for a donkey, what do you think he means for a person that's created in his image? The priest knew this scripture. What about Psalm 37, verse 21, where it says that a righteous person is gracious and gives? But the priest would also know the wonderful words of the prophet Micah, where Micah in chapter 6 says this, 
concerning us and worship. What shall I come to the Lord with? What shall I bring? I will bow myself before the Lord on high. Shall I come with burnt offerings and yearlings and calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? No. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Now, I'm glad that one's not there. I'm a firstborn. I'm an only born. And my daughter was, and my grandson is. So I'm glad that that one kind of is out of the way. Should I give my firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No, he has told you, O man. This is verse 8 of chapter 6. He has told you what he wants and what is good. What does the Lord require of you but these three things? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He would have known that, this priest would, as he's on this journey and sees this guy, but he declines to provide mercy and to walk humbly. He walks humbly the opposite way, it says. So when that little remark that a certain priest came down and the ray of hope shone through, it immediately went off the edge because it says he passed by on the other side. And that word for the other side is very strong. It's the word anti. It means against, the opposite way, all the way over to the other side. So when he saw it, he made the conscious decision that I am going to turn my head and go the opposite way. And I'm not going to look upon that man that's there in need. So Jesus says then to the lawyer who asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And they talked about loving God and loving your neighbor. Then evidently, this is, a, this is kind of a description of that kind of love, isn't it? And he probably didn't have it, which is why Jesus is trying to get at the heart of evangelism, to get at the root of the problem to say, you've got to change before you do. He, he said, you don't love God either by this, because what? What did the law say? You're to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What did Jesus say as he taught? If you love God, keep my what? Commandments. So we just read some of the commandments that that priest would have known and he failed to do them. So that means if you love God, you keep his commandments and you didn't do it. So the message is, as you thought you skipped over the loving God part and went to neighbor, son, you don't even really love God because you're not keeping his commandments. So he had no love for the man. And now immediately Jesus turns the question, though, of who is my neighbor and he's saying it's not about the other guy. It's not about trying to qualify and putting in a small little box who my neighbor is so I know who I am supposed to love and do good to. I'm not supposed to do that. He flips the question and says the problem is you. You're just responsible for you. And the question is do you love this way? It's not about the other guy. It's about me and he's saying make application to yourself that everyone that you come in contact with is your neighbor that's what he's telling him and at this point the priest walks the other way and it's kind of humorous to hear what other folks have taught on this passage if you've 
heard this taught before in a Bible class or in a lesson. You've probably heard a couple of these. They'll write three pages on the priest was probably thinking that if that's a dead body and I touch it, that makes me ceremonially unclean. So I've got a good excuse to pass the other side because I'm going to have to worship God and provide the offerings. Other folks say, it's a dangerous road. It could be a trap. If he goes over there, it could be a setup so that they would jump him and take his stuff. So he has a right to go on. You want to know the truth about what the man was thinking? You want to know the truth? He wasn't thinking anything. This is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is using to present a point, and the point's not about what the man was thinking. It's about how I'm supposed to act, but yet people will expound on excuses why I shouldn't love like this. And I find that very humorous. There was no little literal man. This is a parable that Jesus taught us to describe and to illustrate a point. And then he goes on in verse 32. He brings another person into the picture and it says that likewise a Levite also came past this place he saw him and again he passed by on the other side again our strong word anti is used there he saw him he turned the exact opposite way and he left a Levite is also someone who belongs to the tribe of Levi like the priests do but the priests were under the lineage of one head which is Aaron And the rest of the Levites were under the other children of Levi. And their tasks were also around the law, but not to be priests. They would take care of things. They would guard the place. When the tabernacle was moving through the wilderness, they carried all of the articles, set them down, took them up. That was their jobs. This man would have also been intimately knowledgeable of the law and all of these things. And yet he turns around and goes the other way as well as did the priest. And so the illustration is is that there is these folks who are supposed to represent me, but yet they don't practice what the word says. They don't love the way they do. They first of all don't love God because they don't keep my commandments. And they don't love my neighbor because you just turned your back on him. Remember the question, though, it all points back to evangelism. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So what it is here is to put on display for the answer of that question. The Levite offered sacrifices for the people. He wouldn't do this because human nature keeps us from that. I don't want to get, what, involved. I don't want to get involved. That's things that comes into our life today as we look at it. But then Jesus brings a twist to this parable in verse 33. A certain Samaritan was on a journey, and he came upon him, and when he saw him, it says that he felt compassion. We assume that the beaten man was a Jew because it's talking about a certain man, and he's speaking it to the Jews, and it's from Jericho to Jerusalem. But here comes the mortal enemy of the Jews, the hated folks of the Samaritans who sowed their birthright like Esau. So now, here is a Samaritan. If the priest and the Levi go to the other way on someone that's a part of the Jewish society, what do you think the hated Samaritan is going to do 
to someone that he knows despises him. Look what it says. It says that he saw him and he felt compassion. Do you know what? If you wanted to slander somebody who was of Jewish origin, you, do you know what you would say to that person to be the ultimate put down? You would say, as they told Jesus in John eight forty eight, did we not rightly say that you have a demon and are a Samaritan? A demon-possessed Samaritan was the worst put-down that you could do. That's how they thought of these people. And this man knew that. He's lying there near death. And he knows that the attitudes, but instead of going the other direction, he has compassion. And the point is, two men had no love. One man is going to give a demonstration of what love is. Because if I am to love God and my neighbor with all of my heart, mind, soul, being, strength, then give me an example of that. I've now seen two examples of righteous people turning a back on someone. Now I'm going to see love in action of what Jesus has given the illustration of. So here he comes. And notice how he does it. Verse 33. He felt compassion. It's where it all begins. We've been talking for the last seven months about what we really are is right here. What you think, what my mental attitude is, is who I really am. And it begins here, love begins in the mind with compassion that this man has when he sees what's going on. So he, he finds that out. And then it says in verse 34, if you're following along, that he went over to him, the opposite of what that guy did. Instead of seeing it and going the other way, it says he went towards him and came to him. And you can just see the imagery. He's wanting to recover this guy to help him out. And it says he goes over to him and he sees his wounds. You know what the word for wounds is in the Greek? Trauma. Trauma. It's traumatic what happened. EMTs. We've, we've got some, some people of our congregation who are EMTs. What do you do when you have someone who is down? You go over, you assess the situation. You take a look at that person. It says he began looking at him and he saw the wounds, the trauma that was done. So then he starts taking action. It says he got bandages out. Where did he get bandages? It has to be from him because it says that man was stripped and left almost naked. So that man had no bandages. So... For me to bandage him up, it's either if I have a spare set of clothes in my pack or I have to take what I am wearing and start ripping those off and binding these traumatic wounds of this man. And then it says that he took oil and wine and began pouring them upon him. Wine was used because of the fermentation process. It's an antiseptic. It would help fight infection. It will cleanse the wound fight the infection that might be there, and then the oil softens the skin. It starts to provide healing. It starts to provide nourishment. It goes in and starts that, and then you take the band-aid and go across it to stop the bleeding and to keep that stuff in and to protect it from the dirt from the outside to coming in and making matters worse. And he does all of this from his own means because that man has none. So I want you to see 
the amount of love. The word for pouring there is not like something that I would think that if I only have, you know, the wine is what I cook with and also drink. The oil, I mean, is what I cook with and I flavor the food and I do that. That's my sustenance on the journey that I'm on. This man had a purpose too because it says he was on a journey. The other two happened by. They, didn't, they weren't on a mission. This guy is on a journey. And he now has to stop and provide all of his provisions for this person. Can you see the amount of love to an enemy that he is beginning to provide here? And then it says that he puts him on his own beast, his own mode of transportation. And he puts him on that. Now he's going to have to walk. He wants to get him somewhere for help, so he's going to take him to an inn. And I don't know how far away that was, how far he had to walk and allow his pack animal to carry this man. He takes him to the inn. And then when he gets him there, the inns in those days was very meager. I mean, it's not like our holiday inn. It's it's rough place. And out here on this journey, it's even rougher. It's a place that could be under attack by these bands of people. But he takes him there, and he goes there. And it says that he took care of him. He negotiated a place to stay. He took him in. And you know what? He continued to take care of that man. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at the next verse. It says, on the next day, verse 35. So he stayed all night, even though... He had an agenda. He was on a journey. He put his priorities aside for the man. So here's another act of love that he did to take care of him. Put my things away. On the next day then, after he's taken care of him, he sees that so far everything is okay. He's probably going to make it. He hands the innkeeper two denarii. That's two full days wages. And he says, here... Take this. I've got to go on my mission, but I'm going to come back in a while. If you need any more than that, I will, will take care of that too. Studying about how much it cost to stop at an inn in those days, they, through excavation and the digging up of things, they have found placards from that time period from inns that had the engravings and stone on them. And it was around one thirtieth, one thirty second of a denarii. So in other words, by handing him two, he paid for two months for that guy to stay there and recuperate from his wounds. Two months. Two full days wages for that man. And he's, then you know what he does? He opens himself up to extortion. Blank check. I'm giving you my word. Blank check. If it costs more than that, what if this guy's a member of Motley Crue and they wrecked the place? You know, and now you've got you've to take care of the whole building. No. Blank check. If there's more to take care of when I come, I will pay it. I don't think we can understand the depth of love that Jesus is talking about here for an enemy that is really my neighbor whenever we look at it. Two months room and board is amazing. But it ends right there. Doesn't matter. He said, it doesn't matter if it's my neighbor or not. I am, I am going to do this. Whoever came across my path, whether it was a friend or an enemy, it had no bearing. And that's what, not all. Look at 
what he also said to the innkeeper in verse 35. Take care of him. I will repay you. And he's exposed himself to all of this. And it's more than just generosity. It's an outpouring of what God expects for us in loving him and loving those that are around about us. And then I ask, have I ever done that for anyone else, especially an enemy? And I would have to admit, no, I never have. If you can say, I've done that once or a couple of times, man, that's great. I applaud that. But now let's take it a step further. Remember, it's perfect tense all the time. Not just even if I would do it one time or two times. It's every time, all the time, what I'm supposed to do. And when I, that just floors me. I can't do that. That's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is you cannot keep the law. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When it says to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, being all the time and your neighbor as yourself, I can't do it. I need a Savior. I can't do it. And that's what this man should have said. I can't do it. I need a Savior. And then he would have been pointed to the right direction. It's impossible for me to do that. Verse 36, Jesus says, Which of these three proved to be the neighbor? He said, forget about who qualifies as my neighbor. It's about you. Who proved to be the neighbor? If you've been following me through the story, lawyer, who is my neighbor? And he, he hated the Samaritan so much he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, I guess the one who did good. Couldn't even bring himself to say who it was that did it. I guess the one that do good. What does Jesus close the story with? Go and do the same. If you're not going to rely on me, if you're not going to say you need a Savior, then go and do the same 100% of the time, just like this story. And that will answer the question of eternal life. But you can't because you've already not done it. So you've already fell short of the law. And if you fall short in one point, you've fallen short... In all of it. And it ends right there. I mean, you go to look at the next verse. He moves on. We don't see any other response, any other interaction. And you know why? Because it was meant for you and I as well. We don't want an answer from just that person. We want an answer from us. How am I going to respond from this? Am I going to say, oh yeah, I can do that all the time. Or am I going to say, no, I need a Savior? What's the answer to my question? That's what matters now. That's why it's open-ended. Because the question is now to us. Do I do the impossible or do I rely on Jesus? Go and do the same. I love Jesus' style of personal evangelism. He made it personal to what applied to that person. Just like he did Nicodemus, the rich young ruler. It's personal. How do you respond to these go and do the same and as 
our worship team comes on back up. You know, this parable is not about social justice. It's not, it wasn't about the guy bandaging him up. It's about how I am to live. It's about what love really is in the eyes of God and what is expected. And it's also to let me know that I need forgiveness because I can't do it. And that's why Jesus came. The parable started with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Thank God the answer is to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe on Him. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. While we were yet sinners, Romans tells us, Christ died for our sins. While we were His enemies, He died for us. So the greatest question there is, is eternal life. The greatest answer, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, which says this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this illustration of what love really is, that it's pertinent to me and not anyone else who I think just qualifies. That it's personal, that it's a lot deeper than what I thought. And that as this week as I studied this again and, and I was humbled in your presence, I thanked you for my Savior because I can't do it. It's not about handing a dollar to the guy in the corner at Walmart. It's about loving like you love and we can't make it. So, Father, if there's anyone here who's been touched by this that says, I have never accepted your Son, and now I understand that it's through Him that eternal life comes, and we pray that they would make that known today and that they would put you on in baptism and that, that they would move forward as a child of yours, realizing that now they have eternal life through your Son. And, Father, for those of us who have thought we loved and thought we knew you, May this teaching challenge us that we only begun to thought what we really knew about you and love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.